Exodus chapter 17 is our text tonight, so good to see so many of you out tonight, and uh, we are continuing our series in Exodus on Wednesday nights. It's always a joy to get back and study the Old Testament and uh, just relate it to our lives and understand it in Christ, and what a, what a joy to study this text. Exodus 17, this is the, the first time the Lord will give a great drink of water to the nation from a rock, and then it's their first war um, that they're going to engage in. Uh, lots of application here as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We are grateful for these men who sacrifice their time and efforts, Lord, as they come here and, and lead us. Lord, thank you for them. Bless them, Lord, and provide for them as, as they serve you in this capacity. But we thank you for each and every one that's here. Many people worked long days today, and they're, they're here to be fed the word of God, to participate in corporate worship together. And uh, Lord, what a blessing, Lord. And then there's many here that have put a lifetime of work in and, and now they serve you in unique ways in their retirements and we're so blessed, Lord. And then, Father, there's children in the room, uh, little ones uh, waiting for their tag to start back up soon. But here they are listening to the word of God, learning to sit and, and obey mom and dad and all the great things that come with that, Lord. So bless their little lives and Pray for our moms and dads that are in here. Give them strength. Help them love one another. It's the greatest thing they can do is love Christ and love one another. And then, Lord, just help them as they parent in these difficult days, Lord, that they will continue to point their children towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so grateful to be together. We have learned probably moreover so now to not take for granted the meeting, the congregating, the assembling of the church, Lord. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Samos wrote a hymn in 1887, 20 years or so after the Civil War. It was in a time when everybody believed in God, particularly in our nation. Um, and everybody said they were God followers. Um, but yet, like today, a lot of people will proclaim that they are believers. Still, we're still in the 90 percentile of people in America who believe there's a God. Um, but yet those who obey him is a different category, isn't it? He wrote a song, his first lines were this in it. He says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. So there's a contingency there, isn't there? When we walk with the Lord according to his word, not according to how I think he should do things or what I think he should say, but when we walk with the Lord according um, in the light of his word. Then he said this unique phrase, and it has so much to do with our passage today. What a glory he sheds on our way. Hmm. What the writer was trying to do was take biblical principles and show when we live our lives according to God's word, his glory is brighter. <laughs> and it shines on our path and gives us direction when we try to live our lives outside of his word, when we are disobedient to his word when we hopefully go astray and say Lord I know what you want me to do but I don't want to do it the path gets very dark <laughs> and this is where you begin to battle and you begin to justify sin and you, you wrestle around and you find yourself lost because when we live our lives as Christians this isn't for an unsaved person to try to figure out the Bible in some magical way to get to God but as Christians if we live our lives in the light of his word, understand the Bible, read it. It's, you don't have to have a seminary education. Read the Bible, understand it, apply it to your life. He'll shed light on your path. He'll show you where he wants you to go. 
And this was so true. As we watch the nation of Israel, and even though they're a great numbered people, it's so easy to make application to our lives because we do the same things they do. They, and they have the glory of God. We actually have him living within us. They have him in a pillar, in a cloud, uh, going before them. And yet their way finds so darkness. They find darkness in their way. They stumble over the littlest things at times. And we'll see that again tonight. As we turn to Exodus chapter 16, we start to see now two sets of problems that hit them. The first is a threat that's personal. They're grumbling again. They've, they've had to face the problem of water shortage now in the wilderness. And so it's very personal. Their children are thirsty. They're thirsty. Their livestock's thirsty. Difficulties are happening. And then as the passage goes on, we'll see there's now a national threat for the first time since they've left Egypt and even all of their lives because they weren't engaged in war per se in Egypt. They are now have another nation that is showing opposition against them and want to kill them. And they are not battle ready. (laughs) They're a bunch of worn out, tired slaves walking through the wilderness. And so they have some difficult issues. Will they trust and obey Will they find out? How long will it take before they find out there's actually no other way? A couple of thoughts tonight. First, trust and obey God with our personal needs. With our personal needs. You know, often we talk as Christians and maybe something big like we've gone through with some of the events that have happened here. Uh, the church rallies great, doesn't it? Big events. We, you know, we find somebody's hungry. We find somebody's going through a difficulty. It's amazing how we respond to stuff like that. But when we get down to the little things, Loving one another. Being kind to one another. Being thoughtful of each other. Loving spouses, loving each other and growing in that love. Those day-to-day walking in light of his word, those type of things is where we seem to find ourselves stumbling. Trusting God that he's going to meet those little needs that we have. And so here we begin to watch this nation making its way through the wilderness and they begin to stumble over some of the smaller things that at least, I'm sure it was big when you're thirsty, but God had already done so much for them, they begin to stumble. Notice in verse one, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped in Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. Well, notice they're moving in stages. Here they are. They're working their way to the land of Canaan. God is directing them with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. He's got Moses leading them, his servant. And they're moving. And, and the Bible says they're moving in stages. And you've got to think about that, trying to get two million plus people across the desert. And some people are going to rest and others are going to move forward. Later we see in, in the Old Testament that God sets them up in their tribes and the, with a temple in the middle and, and the priest, the Levite priest carrying that and he's got tribes out front and on the sides and in the back. But now they're just moving. There's just a large group of people, a lot of animals, uh, a lot of people moving across this wilderness and they're moving in stages. And the people would rest and stop and then move forward. And you think about this, they're, they're gone from a ways now and they're getting thirsty. Doubtlessly, they had capacity of bringing water along. You, you can't have oxen and sheep and, and chickens and whatever else they had with them because they had to eat, so forth. They were getting manna every morning, but they had livestock. The Bible says they had livestock with them. Plus their own thirst uh, that they need, they had a limited capacity and those things are starting to run out. And the Lord seems to be directing their path here, doesn't he? Notice the Bible says here, according to the command of the Lord. 
So the Lord is leading them. And he happens to be leading them to a place where there's no water to drink. That's what he does sometimes. Sometimes he takes us into the desert. Sometimes he takes us to a place where some of the simplest things that we need are not there, and he wants to see how we're going to react. And so he's leading them. And it's a very important part of that verse, verse 4, according to the command of the Lord. Moses is leading this group of people. God is leading them through the pillar and through the cloud. He's leading them the way he wants to go. Now their last stop, this is their last stop here at this watering hole with Rephidim and Rephidim. And they're on the way to Mount Sinai. This is where the law is going to be given. This is where they're really going to be established as a nation and, and they're going to have the law of God and, and they're going to begin to understand what God wants for them and, and he's going to begin to draw them and, follow, and they're going to follow him in these ways. And so they're on the way to that and this is known to be their last stop um, before they get there. And there's supposed to be springs here and, and I studied a little bit of the history on this um, uh, and, and I think as they came, they were expecting this. This would have been well-known traveled areas, doubtlessly, but there happens to be no water there. Or at least, none drinkable. Notice the Bible says this in verse one, there was no water for the people to drink. So it either was no water or it wasn't drinkable. And that, and that could be one of the scenarios. The water was undrinkable at Mara, right? Uh, it was bitter, they couldn't drink it, and so the Lord did a miracle there by casting this tree into the water and cleansing that water and making it drinkable. It also could have been suffering from a drought. We, we've seen that happen. There's droughty times where springs dry up. On our ranch, there was a few years where our springs dried up, and then all of a sudden they return later. I mean, that happens in arid climates. Also another problem that I want you to think about just a little bit, the Amalekites are here. And there are some writers that, that I studied and read on this believe that the reason they couldn't get to the good water is the Amalekites were here. And I'll tell you what, if you ever, you ever want to have an interesting study, study about the water wars in the West. A lot of people get shot over it. Water is the key to ranch life, key to livestock, key to life, right? And there's possibility, there's a real possibility that the Amalekites have either fenced off or had secured this water, and that might be, be part of the war that comes on in the second half of this chapter. But regardless of the situation, this triggers this inner disposition disposition of this nation. What, what's in their hearts now is going to come out. They're thirsty and now there's a problem. Now, how many of us parents been in the back seat or remember when you were in the back seat and you were hungry and dad wouldn't stop the car and what came out of your mouth? Or, or those type of things, right? So it doesn't take much to bring out the heart, right? How many of you are, are happy, hungry people? Have you ever heard of a happy, hungry person? Most of the time we're grumbling when we're hungry. We use the word like, I'm starving to death. I'm going to die of thirst. I mean, these people really, really in that position. But it's bringing out this problem. It's bringing out a hard issue, right? Notice verse 2 and 3. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses, verse three, and said, why now have you brought us from, up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Well, the people do not explicitly confront the Lord, but that's really what they're doing, right? 
They find the next best person. They challenge his leadership. They challenge the appointed leaders of the Lord. The word quarrel is an interesting word. It's not used too often um, in the Old Testament, but denotes an idea of a legal proceeding here. They're filing a grievance against Moses is what they're doing. It's a formal expression. We're dissatisfied with the conditions of our life, and you need to fix them, Moses. Well, it's one thing to pull over and you know, get a few drinks for the people, but you're talking about millions of people here. This is not, this is not a little dig a hole, find some water, you know, rinse it out a little bit and drink it. They need lots of water here. However, Moses points out the true nature of their complaint. Notice verse two at the end. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you file this legal complaint against me? Why do you test the Lord? See, Moses knows what's going on. Their attitude was one of lacking in trust in their king and their provider who had brought them out of the nation of Egypt, who had split seas, drowned their enemies, and have fed them bread every morning and flew quail in on a plate for them, in a sense. And so Moses says, why are you grumbling? Why are you testing the Lord? There's clearly a defiant stance here by people. And because we don't always say, and think about this personally, we don't always look at God and say, God, why aren't you giving me more money? We come home and complain about what? Our boss or the job or we, we don't direct things. Yet we sing here and we say, even as we sing a song and Hayward reminded us of the sovereignty of that song we just sang, we don't go after him, do we? Well, it's gotta be somebody else's problem or somebody else's fault. And of course, that's what they did. And they take this defiant stance against God in a, in a, because these needs, these needs that they have are not being met on their timetable. And again, it's difficult because you're talking about thirst, but, but here God has proven himself. And so it's the difference of walking by, what, sight versus walking by faith. And that's the lesson that he's trying to teach. Trust and obey me. It does, the song didn't say, see what I'm doing and then obey me. There's a trust, there's a faith here. Now, again, we, we say that this is a difficult ses- uh, situation, but the text says, why do you trust Why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? It's a very important part of that phrase there. The place is actually named after this. We'll see at the end, Massa, because they tested God. And I'm sure sure Moses was reminding them, hey, look, this is what God has done. Your your thirst is causing you to have short-term memory loss. Don't you remember we came across and we were all cheering about how he drowned it everything. And then three days later, we were dying of thirst and he provided water there. And then we were crying for food and he brought manna. I'm sure he's reminding them this. But they're going against a a commandment that's going to come out from God throughout the Bible is not to test God. You know, that was illustrated perfectly in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was led into the wilderness. You remember that passage? Matthew 4 says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to test him. To test him. The show of his perfection, his impeccability as he would make his way to the cross throughout that lifetime. There the devil took him, the Bible says, uh, into the holy city and took him upon the pinnacle, the temple, you remember this, and said, if you're the son of God, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself down, and then he begins to quit, quote scripture, right? Where he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus turns around, you remember this, right? And he says to the devil, on the other hand it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. God does not take kindly to us testing him it is us who need the testing it is us who need the trials 
And so here this people are testing. And so there's a very important word that God says in, his, in God's word here, you're testing God. I promise you, if you test God long enough, something probably is not gonna happen great to you. <laughs> he will discipline those he loves and he will judge those he does not. So think about that. Now, this is the third time the people have grumbled against him. It's the third time. The Bible's keeping track of this. And whenever, whenever you forget, just think about this, whenever you forget the cost of our freedom from slavery, right? We were all slaves in sin. We were all bound to our sin. It was going to drag us to hell. We deserve the darkness and all the judgment that God could throw at us. Whenever we forget the freedom and the cost of that freedom of our slavery, our tendency is to grumble against the one or those who showed us or led us through that freedom. And that's what's going on here. And this is a result of this unwillingness to suffer and, and, to, and to bring these unjust accusations against the one who's trying to lead. And this is, we see this over and over in Israel, but we see this over and over in church life. Churches have gone through tons, tens and thousands of splits in America where churches have risen up and gone against leadership. And, and sometimes the leadership was poor, but other times it's not. And, and this is what happens. They forget the one who has freed them and they start to attack those who point them towards the one who, and so it's repeated over. That's why in the book of Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews is admonishing the early church, obey your leaders. Obey them. Obey the ones that brought you out of the wilderness. And later it goes on, obey your elders because God has set them up to give charge over you and they must give an account because it's a constant problem. Because look, we're not gonna go after God, are we? We're not gonna shake our fist at God. We know, we, hey, we've been to Sunday school. You don't do that. But we'll take after somebody else. We'll take after a spouse. We'll take after a loved one when we don't like what's happening to us. Now, notice the, how aggressive the tack is against Moses in verse three. It uses the word you here. It's singular in the Hebrew. So it means they're addressing Moses alone. They're not including God. They don't seem to be including Aaron. This is a very personal attack as they don't even hesitate to bring in what? They bring in the children, all right? You've brought us out here to kill the children. Children are always the, the non-negotiation piece, right? You know, people love to use the children, you know? This is for the children. This is how, how nasty this tack was. You're gonna kill our children and you're gonna kill our animals. This is all we have. They needed water, and they saw Moses as the source of the problem. You remember, Paul does such a good job recounting this stuff. Second uh, Corinthians chapter four and chapter ten both reaccount some of this stuff. But towards the end of that text in First Corinthians four, he says that for momentary we have light affliction, but it's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. And it's such a hard verse to remember when we're going through difficult times. But the Bible says it's momentary. Well, why? Well, you don't know my trial. I'm going through cancer. I'm going through a divorce. I'm going through this. You don't know how heavy this is. It is momentary compared to eternity. And I said this not recently. If we add up our days of our lives that, that where we go through real serious hard trials, where where 
we're in tears. We're, we're on our face before God. If you add that up in our life compared to a normal life of go to work, you know, eat, maybe still might be hard life, but we have food, we have, we have shelter, we have somebody who is nice to us, we have that. Most of our life is very good, isn't it? If you think through it. The Bible says there's a time where there's light affliction, and, and <laughs> this is written from Apostle Paul, right, who was beat, you're imprisoned, shipwrecked, snake bit, in the deep, I mean, all that stuff. He's the one saying, light of fiction, for an eternal weight of glory. Suffering is part of what happens to us in this world. Remember, I preached a sermon not too long ago. I think we're outside. We are aliens and strangers in this world. This is not our home, and so we are here just passing through this, and so it's gonna cause problems. It's gonna cause friction with those who don't like us in their backyard at times. And, and look, we, we live in this fallen world. The Bible tells us that creation is groaning. We deal with cancer and sin and immorality all around us and, and men just pursuing their will and, and running over the top of everybody. And now if you don't believe this or say this or, or say it the right way, then you're this or you're that, right? I mean, we're all feeling this, aren't we? It's a momentary. Scott Menez may live 75 years, whatever the national rate is. I don't know what it is today. But he'll live forever. Forever. Anybody got to put some zeros behind that with me? Just keeps going. And then it says, Why we, uh, while we look not at the things which we are seeing, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. And that includes, listen, your, your struggle that you're going through right now, whatever it is, relational, uh, financial, whatever it is, it is temporary. It is temporary. And that's the problem. They can't see. They're so consumed with things going there. Egypt, we had water, we had cakes, we had fish, we had leeks, we had all that. They can't see past the temporary. And you and I, we get in struggles with our spouses, we get in struggles with our families, because temporary things throw us off a track, don't they? And they're struggling here. We are to look for the things which are not seen, what are eternal, the Bible says. So the nation here, nation of Israel, will not be able to enjoy the land. Think about it. They're not going to enjoy the land if they don't enjoy their relationship with God. I can promise you, if you want to attend this church and you don't, you don't want to enjoy God, you're probably not going to enjoy us. Because that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to love God and love his word and, and gather a bunch of people and try to affect the world by God's grace. That's what we're trying to do here. But boy, when you don't love God, you don't love the land you live in. I'll promise you, you don't like your job. You don't like your spouse. You're frustrated with your children. You don't like your financial status. When you don't love God, everything looks bad. And, and you go, well, wait a minute, I love God and I don't love my spouse. Okay, what's the problem then? God? See, see that, these, I love teaching the Old Testament because they're just this two million people that kind of make me look at myself. They're, they're a great mirror, aren't they? Second thought. Gotta get moving. Trust and obey God when it seems everyone else doesn't. <laughs> Trust and obey God when it seems everyone else doesn't. Look at verse four. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do to this people? And a little more, and they will stone me. See, Moses displays trust in the Lord, doesn't he? 
He's real different, right? He's a type, like he, he's, he's a type, like Christ. He's not Christ, he he's needs Christ's blood to die for him, but he's a type, isn't he? And just like our Lord in the garden, when, when things got difficult, when he could feel the weight of the trial coming, he went to the Lord, and so does Moses. In this point, he cries out to the Lord. Notice that phrase in verse four. Moses cried out to the Lord. You know when you cry out? When you're overwhelmed. That's when you start crying out. And unfortunately, a lot of times we wait till we're overwhelmed. And we don't deal with the Lord and talk with him on the daily stuff. But, but here Moses is overwhelmed strictly because of the amount of what he's dealing with. He's not just dealing with a, you know, a wife and a few kids and a donkey or two. You know. He's got two million plus people. And they're a bit integrated. There's Egyptians among them. There's, there's other people that come out of slavery with them. It's a difficult thing. Notice he says this people. That little phrase is interesting. I think what it does, it's separating himself from the people. I feel alone, God. I am trying to obey you. I, I don't think he's sinful in this. I think he's just pouring out his heart. He feels alone. Doubtlessly, there's Caleb there. We're gonna see Joshua come forward. Doubtlessly, there's people there. But when you go through a trial, sometimes when you don't seem to have anybody around, you feel very much alone, don't you? And here he feels alone. And to help you know how bad this is, notice in the verse that he says, look, they're about ready to stone me. <laughs> That's bad. That's an attitude toward him that is so grossly sinful that it's life-threatening, and this is a typical mob reaction. The mob is gonna kill me, God, if you don't do something. And I don't think he's making this up. It may be his view out his tent, like, you know, Lord, it's getting bad out there. I watched a guy selling stones. But he cries out to the Lord. Look at verse five here. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Egypt, I mean of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now I love this. It's clear God wants Moses to keep moving forward. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's what happens to us, right? We get resistance, we have these difficulties, and we want to stop in our Christian faith. We don't want to move forward. We don't want to go where God has a plan for us. We kind of stop. And he says, no, get your staff and go. Keep going. Sin, sin will drop you in your tracks. It'll stop you from where you're going. It'll actually back you up and it'll make you want to go back somewhere where you should not be. Isn't that what Egypt's doing? It's exactly what they're doing. Why can't we go back? That's what sin will do. And so it's clear God wants Moses to keep moving forward. Don't go back. Egypt isn't the plan. Mount Sinai is the plan. Then the promised land. That's the plan. That's what I've promised. I won't fail. I will bring you in the, because I said that. This is a simple thing of thirst. I can handle it. Grab your staff and let's go. And I think sometimes we need that. Sometimes we cry out to the Lord. We just need the Bible to give us a little kick in the pants, don't we? Oh God, it's so hard. Pretty soon you gotta get up and go, right? You gotta get up. You can lay on the ground so long and say, and I, and I believe me, I've been there. I've been on my face before God through difficult things, through, through ministry and life and so forth, and I'm sure I'll be there again. The question is how long you're gonna be down there. Trust and obey. For there's no other way. Get up and go, and I love what Moses does. He, he obeys him, right? Now notice Moses Moses is instructed to take elders with him as witnesses. 
He's got to get this message across. Somebody needs to see this. Men of authority. These are probably tribal leaders. We'll see next time in chapter 18 where we see more uh, what we call godly men who are selected by their character and conduct and so forth. These are probably tribal leaders. But Moses also is to take this staff, right? Here comes that staff. I think, remember, we talked about Pharaoh probably hated every time he saw that staff. Well, now he says, get that staff, which you struck the Nile with. This is a signal that God is about ready to exercise divine power. Look at verse six. Behold, I will stand before you. And then interesting, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and, rock, and the water will come out of it that, my, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of Israel. Now that term, I will stand before you, isn't that interesting? I, I think we kind of stand before him, don't we? Um, but, you know, think about this. This, is, this pillar's been moving, this pillar at night's been moving or camped over them. It always kind of was always moving and directing them. They're working their way to Mount Sinai and then the promised land eventually. But it's, I think it's more the idea that God has stationed himself over that rock. This is the place that I'm going to do something extraordinary. And I'm going to quench the thirst, thirst of all of my people. The rock is interesting. read quite a bit on this. Um, it, it could have been a boundary. They're moving into um, some newer territories. Of course, the Amaleks are there who may have put the rock there or, or just a marker that was a marker that divided the desert up in certain ways. But whatever it is, it's this large landmark of some sort because it's known. It's this rock at Horeb. And Moses is instructed to strike the rock here. Right, And he does. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us of all what happens like it does in the next one when he strikes it out of anger and says, hey, look what I'm going to do. This one, he strikes it, and two million people plus get water for them and all, everything they need. Now, <laughs> I like reading liberals every once in a while because it's kind of fun. Because um, they're all trying to figure out how it can't be supernatural. So I read one guy, and he said this. Well, the rock had a very thin layer there, and there was a river underneath the rock. And he, this staff was extremely hard, and when he struck it, he cracked that, and a river flew out of it for two million people. You know, they just have such a hard time saying God can do supernatural things, don't they? Right? And then there's a, you know, they swing the pendulum the other way, and there's a group of Christianity that says supernatural, we're not going to do anything. You know, so we, we see the supernatural act of God, and we react, and we obey, and we, we have a human responsibility in our walk with him. But anyway, I, there's nothing in the language that suggests that that was what happened. This is just simply a creator, our creator God, doing a miracle and supplying his people. And if you don't believe me, look at Psalm 78, because this is recorded all the way down to the Psalms. Look at this passage, Psalms 78. I had not caught this really in this context before when I read Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a great reminder of the people and what happened during this time. And it's recorded for all of us and for them to read. Psalm 78, verse 15, speaking of this, this event in the Old Testament, it says, He, that's God, split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean's depth. <laughs> it wasn't a trickle. This, is, this thing split open and provided so much water. Verse 16, he brought forth streams also from the rock and caused water to run down like rivers. 
So this is just nothing short of an absolute miracle that God provided. In fact, many people have tried to go back and find this, and, and it doesn't seem to be there anywhere. There's no river out there in this current time flowing like this. And so God provided for his people what they need. And, and look, I think it was there long enough, and they're not very far from Sinai. And this might have been the source that God gave them for many times, for weeks on end when they were at Sinai, for actually several months. They can come back to this and get water. It was a great source for them. It's just a flat-out miracle, isn't it? Paul remarks of this stuff that happened in Sinai as well. He uses this as an example. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, he says, for, and all drank of the, spirit, uh, the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which, flowed, which followed them. Then it says this, and the rock was Christ. So Paul describes that the Israelites have drunk from this spiritual rock, and that rock is Christ. He says that. Now, spiritual, what he means there, denotes that this is something that doesn't belong to natural order, but it's something that God has given. And if you think about this, we try to understand what Paul's saying there. Without this gift of water from God, they all perish, right? So wherever the people went, they were divinely provided for by God himself. And that provision anticipates the provision of Christ. You drink from Christ, (laughs) You dip into that well by the providence of God, you will live forever. And so Paul's using this scene here as a, as a soteriological view of drinking from Christ. It's a supernatural work anytime somebody gets saved. And so it's a spiritual act, and Paul uses this. And, and I don't think anybody at this rocket, at this scene here in Exodus 7, 17, understood that. But Paul says, look, brothers, there's a, they drink from this spiritual rock, and so do we. That rock is Christ, and we're satisfied. There's more than abundance, as the psalmist wrote. It's like flowing from the oceans. This is where our songwriters get some of this stuff. That the love of God, the, the sovereignty of God just flows out more than what we could ever need. Now, Moses was probably, I think, the most blessed in this situation because he had faith, right? And his faith helped him not grumble. So I thought about that for a while. Lord, okay, where are the areas I grumble in? So wherever that area is, as you establish where that area is, where I grumble, where I complain, where I'm unsatisfied with what God has done, there'll be a lack of faith in that area. Does that make sense? So think, where, where's an area in your life that you grumble at? You don't have to tell anybody unless you want to. Where's an area you grumble at? Think about it. Work? Relationships, money, have I hit any yet? Health. So there, when you find yourself grumbling, it's a point where our faith is extremely weak. We're weak there. So, So find that area. Find that area. As a staff, we did a little exercise, just a good spiritual exercise yesterday. We just we just took time to find areas in our life that we we knew we're not glorifying to God. We took time as a staff, just a very quiet time. We just shut everything down and we just all spent time before God recognizing some of those areas in our life because we know what God's asked us to do here and, and the responsibility he's given us and so we want to deal with those things and we don't want a loss, loss of joy as a staff. And I would encourage you to do that. Maybe as you lay your head down tonight and say, God, I grumble in this area. My faith is extremely weak. I don't trust you in this area. And then start, start, you know, chart a plan. What am I gonna do? 
I, I don't have a lot of times, but I want to give you some real practical examples. When I was going to seminary years ago, I was going to seminary in the San Francisco Bay Area, but we were living in Northern California, and so I would commute, spend nights down there, do seminary, come back, you know, study the next sermon, get ready to preach at church, do them over and over and over for years. It was a very difficult time, but I was tired. I would come home, and, and Gina, and there's four wild boys waiting for their dad, you know, and you're wiped out. You've been doing Greek and Hebrew, and Brian's just killing you. You know, he's giving you stuff like there's no tomorrow, and your, your mind. I would go from Greek from seven to nine, uh, half an hour break and go into Hebrew. And Brian's just got, come on. You know, your mind's just gone. And you're coming home, and you got three papers to write, and you have a sermon. There's two counseling appointments that have to be done. Um, you know, you've got a church plant going. You're working with young pastors that you're training. And, and I remember I just was mean. I was grouchy. So I found a little spot just down the road from our little ranch we had and had a turnout there and I had to learn to pull over there. And I had to learn to say, God, my faith is weak. My family needs me. And I need to go in there and lovingly lead them. Because I watched myself fail so many times. And it's so easy to fall into that. And grumbling and complaining and unsatisfied with what God has given you. It, it exposes that weakness of faith and this is where these people are at. I don't trust God who did so much. And, and well, I gotta get off this and keep moving, but think about this. Um, when you're making that list about those areas you grumble, you better make this one over here. Jesus Christ died for your sins, past, present, and future, and you'll never be judged for them. That's what balances this out and gives you strength to do it. Here, the picture of salvation was the picture of freedom from slavery. The yoke was off of them. And so that should have kept them going. Verse seven, God, or Moses here, names through Moses, names this place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? These, these names are given here to remind the nation that this was an area of great grievance with God. They sinned here. They were testing him. They didn't trust his provision. And, and when you get farther, we'll get farther, and, and we're taking sections of this of the Pentateuch along, but Numbers 14, they finally get to a point where God says this to them. They've, they've tested him so many times. He says this, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness. He's talking about this time, isn't he? Yet have put me to the test these ten times and I have not listened to, and they have not listened to my voice. So God, look, if we don't confess our sin and repent for them, you know, particularly as unbelievers, you're gonna be judged for all of those. But here he's keeping a record here. And I wanna be very, very careful of that. As, as a believer, he does not open the books and judge us. Those things are wiped out as believers. But it is interesting that he sees this and remembers this. And it isn't like, well, you know, quite a few times you've done this. 10 times you have tested me. This is why we believe not all Israel is Israel and all Israel is saved. Now, one of the points that is clear here is the nation doesn't understand who they are. They don't understand their freedom. They don't understand what Christ, what, excuse me, what God has done, Yahweh has done here. They've forgotten those things. Psalms 96, verse 8 and 9, reflecting back to this point. Psalms 96 reflects back to this story. It says this, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, 
as in the days of Massa in the wilderness, that's this passage, when your fathers tested me and tried me, though they had seen my work. I mean, Psalm 96 records exactly what goes on here. And God says, do not test me like your fathers did. I think that's a warning. I don't think we preach like this anymore. We're, we're so afraid of not getting people in churches and getting them to give and, you know, you know, God is love and then God's love and then God's love. That's what we teach on anymore in church today. God hates sin. I mean, we have to remember that. And it's so easy to go, yeah, boy, they're really doing those bad things out there. No, he hates mine. <laughs> it cost his son's death. <laughs> and he's serious about this, isn't he? Now, we're told over and over that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, right? And here the Bible says, don't harden your heart as they did in Meribah and Massa. Don't harden it. I think many people harden their heart against God because things didn't go the way they thought God should have had them do it. So they harden their heart. And trouble comes. Trouble comes. Third thought, trust and obey God as he fights our battles. This is an amazing battle. We'll see how far we get here. Um, the Israelites are not only having this internal threat of extinction, that's dying of thirst, right? Now, um, they've had this water, but now this external threat of extinction starts to happen, right? There's this group of Amaleks who have risen up against them, and we're gonna see that in this chapter. And, and just real quick, the Amaleks, you know who they are, right? They're the oldest son of Esau. Uh-oh, we got patriarchal sin starting to come back and bite. So here comes the Amalekites. And they are proving themselves to still have a hatred to God, just like their forefathers did. And now they're causing a problem with God's nation. And just like Esau, they were this semi-nomadic tribe that moved around. Doubtlessly, they had staked claim to this water area. They were there in that area. And it's highly likely that this battle is arising now over water or maybe over that new water right that's happening. Because I'll guarantee you they got spies. You've got two million, four million people walking around. Not very hard to send a few Amalekites with things on their head, you know, and a staff or whatever, whatever the Egyptians look, I mean the Israelites look like, to walk in there and go, dude, you don't know, you can't believe what just happened there. They got a water source that makes us look like a, you know, a crick. Who knows? I- I'm just guessing at this. I just know water wars and and how that happens. Now, whatever this is, whatever's causing this, these people rise up. Look at verse eight. Then Amalek, Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Now, this is actually a very cowardly action done by these people. Look with me at Deuteronomy 25. Um, because God's word remembers what they did to his people. Deuteronomy 25, 16 17. Actually through 19. Remember what Amalek, Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. Now this is, this is just before Moses dies. He's writing down what we call sundry laws and then some extra commands that are given in there. You're to remember Moses, you remember nation of Israel, what this, this group did to you. How he met you along the way and attacked and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Whoa, that tells us these people, have, they're anti-God, they're anti-living God, they don't want nothing to do with them. People say, well, how can God just wipe out nations? 
Well, first of all, you can wipe out everybody and be just. <laughs> None of us deserve anything, right? But these people were anti-God. They hated the God of, of Israel. They had heard what he had done. If you're, not, if you're not a follower of the living God and you see what he's done with this nation that didn't deserve what they got, it causes hatred in them still to this day. I mean, how many people just, how many nations just hate the nation of Israel? And they're on a little postage stamp of what really should be theirs. Great hatred towards them. But he says, look, you, you attack them. They attack them from the rear. That's the most faint people, right? When driving cattle, it's always the calves are in the back. We're chucking them in the trailer. You know, old cows are falling off the end. We're trying to do 20 today with these cows and the old ones and the ones that are weak, they start falling back. Well, same with people. You know when you go to Disney and your little one's starting to fall off the back? <laughs> Looks like we're done. That's what happened. And they come along and they picked them off. And so God says this, therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek. From under the heaven you must not forget. Boy, a lot of people can't get by that, can they? That God is still righteous in doing that. Wages of sin is, we all deserve it, don't we? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ as Lord, our Lord. And so here he reminds us that um, God has not forgot what he's doing. So this is really cowardly what they do. They come from behind and try to pick them off and cause a war, right? In verse nine and 10. So look at this, who, who rises here in our story. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as the Lord told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on the, went on top of the hill. So this, this threat by these Amalekites here was met by a, a determined response from Moses who's being led by God, isn't here? And this is the first mention of Joshua. It's the first time he's mentioned in the Bible. And there's no formal introduction. Usually it introduces by he was, his father was so-and-so and his father begot, you know. that. None of that's here. Get Joshua and get some guys and let's go fight. Joshua's believed to be around 45 at this time and probably the foremost military man in the camp. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, when you come out of Egypt with a bunch of worn out people and you have to get away because God doesn't take them away the Philistines that were there these sea people that doubtlessly would have fought them I'm sure Moses said I got to find a military guy who guy who thinks military here because we're going to have some problems along the way so doubtlessly he knew who Joshua was Joshua had been gathering these guys and Joshua he's an amazing man he's one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament the study but he comes and now he begins to assist Moses from here on out as they go through the wilderness, and he plays a significant role as they spend time in the wilderness. Um, he, he's up on the mount with, on Mount Sinai, Sinai at times with Moses. He's communing with God. He's part of the tent of meetings. Um, he's part of the 12 spies that scout out Canaan, and he's one that says, hey, God promised that God said to do this. The other 10 are going without Caleb, right? Caleb and Joshua. The other 10 are going, oh, now there's giants, we're grasshoppers, we're dead. Yeah, you're dead, and your kids walk around for 40 years. Not Joshua. Not Joshua. He believed the promises of God. His original name was probably Hosea, but it was changed to Joshua. Hosea meant Savior. And now it's called the Lord Saves. That's what Moses seems to name him in Numbers chapter 13. But I imagine Joshua had been surveying these people. He knew who he needed. And so he gathers these guys to fight the Amaleks. 
And, and, and I, don't, I don't believe that Moses had a vi- envisioned that the battle would be determined by Joshua and his men because he says, notice in verse 9, he says, tomorrow I will stand myself on the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, if he had just said, well, I'm going to go up on the hill and, you know, wave a flag around, because, again, I read some liberals, and they said, well, he's on the hill moving that around because he was giving war signals. <laughs> they, just can't, they just can't give God credit, can they? You know, he's got that staff with him again. Man, it would be fun to have that thing, right? Uh, he's got that staff. And so I think Moses knows what's going to happen, so he stations himself in a suitable vantage point up there, and, and it's, he, has, he looks like he has authority and control, but yet he has that staff of God. And I think the most important thing about verse 9 is that staff's in his hand, and God's present with him. And he's going to take them through their first battle. And what's so interesting about this passage is they really stumbled over things like thirst and hunger. But the nation just responds here. And I I thought about this long and hard. I thought, that's either just because we like to fight. (laughs) Or maybe after the water, they said, man, God's done so much for us, at least for a little bit. Okay, Joshua, I'll go. I'll go fight with you. Now, verses 11 through 13. So it came about when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steadily uh, were steadied until sunset, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now the hands up, Israel's winning. Hands down, Amalek winning. You can just see that's really clear. Um, the Hebrew expression here kind of gives the idea that it actually happened many times. Like, oh, it, was, it happened quite a bit. And, you know, <laughs> that kind of view that's happening. Um, I think sometimes we read this, he kept his hands up, went down maybe one time. I think they probably battled back and forth and there was life lost, uh, certainly on both sides. Um, but here, God wants us to know that it was not the lifting of Moses' hands. It wasn't something special in his hands. It was probably what Moses was doing. Now, Psalm 63, 4 says, I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands to your name. Now, I think there's probably a connection there in some way. Um, doubtlessly, Moses had been around now. He's seen what God has done. Doubtless, as he held, held his hands up, who do you think he was talking to? He's used to crying out to God, isn't he? And I, doubt, I don't doubt, and I think that's what, that this is a real theme of this, is he's interceding for those who are fighting. Christ intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. And these are types, right? And so I think he's interceding. The power of God is there. God's gonna win this victory. But he is interceding for those down in the valley, isn't he? And he's interceding for these nation. The word overwhelmed, it says here that they overwhelm them. Um, they, they took them. Uh, I lost that word. It might have been a different English word. Um, is the idea that, uh, it's an interesting word in the Hebrew, it's, it means heavy casuals, casualties. So Israel just wiped out a very heavy casual on the Amalek side here. And of course this battle raged on, verse 14, till the Lord put an end to it. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in the book of a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly uh, that I will utterly blot, uh, blot out the memory of Amalek 
from under heaven. So here, this is interesting. God wants him to write this down. Now remember, Joshua's down the valley fighting this. So he wants this put down on some kind of maybe papyrus or, or some kind of dried animal skin, not on a rock because that's too heavy to carry, um, but something they can read. And he wants it read to Joshua and he wants this remembered. I think that's fascinating. Um, I want this done so that they will know it. And you could go back and read this in, again in Deuteronomy 25 that Israel was reminded of what happened here because God wanted the Amalek nation blotted out. Now, it was a difficult thing to do. When you, when you study the Amaleks, they didn't just blot them out, wipe them out when the day they walked into the Canaan. They go actually all the way to problems with Gideon. Remember Gideon? Remember his little tribe? He started out with thousands and thousands and got down to 300 guys and, you know, a horn and a pitcher, you know, <laughs> Okay, well, that was Amalek's. And there God slaughtered them at that point too. Uh, King Saul battles them in 1 Samuel, and they're not finally annihilated till King Hezekiah all the way to 1 Chronicles 4. So um, David didn't wipe them out, Solomon, none of them got them. But eventually they did fulfill this. Now, verse 15, real quick, and we're gonna finish here quickly. um, Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. I think that's fascinating, right? We have old songs, old Sunday school songs. Some of you older people can remember the banner of the Lord and remember all those songs we used to sing way back then. And some of this comes from here. But it was customary that they put a pole up and you know a flag on it of some sort, for a better lack of word, um, and mark victories. But that's not really what was going on in here. The Lord is my banner, not the army. That's what Moses is trying to get through to them. The Lord is the banner. The Lord is the one who gets the victory. The, the flag is staked where God is, not our army. And this is why Israel dominated for so long because there was time, for a long time, they did trust God. They, they took the ark with them. He was their banner. He knew they would win. They wouldn't even go up unless he was going with them. And so Moses is trying to set that into the mind of, of the people here. So in most every circumstance, we see Moses just turning to the Lord, seeking for prayer, knowing that the victory comes from the Lord. And then finally, verse 16, our last verse here, and it said, the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And I've kind of read that. Um, But it was a problem. I I found a text in Jeremiah, I don't remember where, but I jotted this down. Um, God refers to the disaster of Esau. Esau was a disaster. Romans 9 says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. From the beginning, Esau rejected God, rejected his plans and everything that comes from him. And then probably the most damning verse of the life of Esau is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. It says, and he uses Esau as an immoral example. Listen to this. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So clearly, um, Esau rejected the living God and lived a life that his descendants went on to live as well. Last thought here, four, trust and obey and stand firm in your faith, knowing God will deliver what he promises. And I just want to end with this. Um, The Bible says that God is going to win, right? We know he's going to win. You read the end of the book, he wins. (laughs) We spend eternity with him. No matter what your eschatology is, where you think he comes back or what it is, and we're working on that, Mark, I'll try to tell you what yours is Sunday. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that passage out. Um, 
But in the end, we win. And, and so, but he, he encourages us here. And I, I want you to get this last point. Trust and obey and stand firm in your faith, knowing God will deliver what he promises. And, and we don't live a Christian life that says, well, yeah, God's great. We're just gonna sit here and kind of wait for him to show up and do his thing. There's an involvement. There's a human involvement here. The Bible says things like this, Colossians 1, 28 through 29. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There's a lot of work in that. That's the work of an elder, work of a pastor, an overseer, right? Paul says this about himself and the men that he's with. Then he says, for this purpose also I labor, striving, what? According to his power and his might. So we labor and strive in this life. We trust and we obey. We do it. We labor at this, right? It's a labor in this world, this fallen world. It's a labor to fight self that always wants to come forward in every relationship and every financial situation. We labor in that to to deny self and say, God, I want to trust you in these difficult circumstances. We labor in that. But we do it through the might of the Lord. So I want to end this lesson reminding us, yes, it is difficult. We go in, everybody in here can have, tell me another story about your job, your relationships, your finances. You all have one. But you labor at this because you love Christ and he's working mightily through you. Philippians says this, that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You say, I didn't think salvation had works to it. Well, it's not talking about that. It's talking about what's happening. Work it out. The result of your salvation works it out. For the next verse says, for it is God who is at work within you both to will and to do his good work. So God is at work, friend. God is at work, brother and sister. And so I encourage you, as you, as you put on the, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and you get up in the morning, there's a battle, right? And you can't walk into battle going, well, God's gonna help me. You gotta get your sword up. <laughs> you gotta put some effort into this, Right? Satan's waiting to pounce on you. But is God mightily working through you? And when you trust him, your arms go up. And God prevails. He prevails. And he will. He will win. So I I really enjoy this series. I don't know if you do, but I do. Um, Because I look at Israel and it's a mirror. It's a mirror. And uh, I pray... I praise the Lord to be able to study the Old Testament and see it illustrated in Christ in our lives. I hope hope it encourages you. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. It's a joy to study together. Thank you for each and every one of these dear folks that are here today. Lord, I pray that you bless them and give them strength. But help us all to be reminded you you are in the battle with us. In fact, it's your battle. We're We're just obeying you, Lord. Help us find those things in our life that we grumble at. And help us make a record of those and and help us realize that you've beat our slavery. We don't have to fall back into the slavery of that sin. You've beat it. Christ died for it. But help us to take note of those things and, and make a plan. Make a plan by your strength so we're not devoured by our sin, Lord. We don't want that to happen to us in this life, Lord. Thank you that you keep us secure though we struggle along at times. You love us and you will get us through to the promised land. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.